And uh, um, as we reflect on this, uh, I, I first want to um, perhaps take a controversial turn to begin. So just bear with me, bear with me. How many of you guys recognize this image? It, uh, you know, it happened in the United States. Um, this guy uh, goes by um, the alias uh, QAnon Shaman. So he's uh, uh, embraced uh, a particular conspiracy theory called QAnon, and I'm not here to talk about the details of that theory. Um, but the reason I bring this up is because we live in a time, and I think we've always really lived in a time, in which people are suspicious or have trust issues or where they feel like something is wrong, and that contributes to the allure of conspiracy theories. So as we start, I want to talk about a few points about the psychology of what's so alluring about a conspiracy theory. Well, it starts off with this, this, this feeling of, of a distrust of, of the world, of systems, um, that, that you know, appearances don't seem to, to, to accurately portray reality or accurately portray what the truth actually is. Uh, to quote the X-Files, if you're familiar with it, trust no one, right? That's, that's this kind of mentality, at least at the extreme, I think it speaks to a nagging sense in many of us that, that something is wrong. As we saw in the video about the three circles, we, we live in a broken world. And I think one of the byproducts of living in a broken world is we develop trust issues, right? We, we become suspicious. We can often become cynical. But there's other motivations as well. And I want to look at three of them. The first has to do with a search for causal explanations. We want to make sense of the world. Where does it derive from? Well, it seems like we're, we're observing inconsistencies in the world, things that don't make sense. Some events seem, seem random or, or senseless, and we are, we are psychologically wired to want to make sense of them, to look for some kind of order or some kind of hand guiding the process. We want to feel rational. And this contributes to the second one. We have a desire to feel safety or at least some sense of control. So to quote the eminent philosopher G.I. Joe, knowing is half the battle. Did that make it over to the UK? I guess no. <laughs> Some people. So that probably just flew over the head. Maybe the Americans in the audience will, uh, will recognize the, the cartoon G.I. Joe. There's a sense in which we want to know, because at least if you know the enemy or you know what's going on, if you have some kind of hidden knowledge, you're safer, or at least you have some sense of control. And the last one is a search for, for belonging. Uh, many drawn to conspiracy theories desire to, 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 to be part of a group. To, to feel like they want to protect the reputation of that group. To feel like they fit in, to feel like they have a purpose within the group. Some recent research on um, the psychology of conspiracy theories had a bit of pretty uh, troubling conclusion. Though these three factors drove people towards conspiracy theories, a sense of, of wanting rational explanations, a sense of wanting to feel safe or in control, and a, a sense of a, a desire for belonging was that these, generally speaking, embracing a conspiracy theory simply didn't fulfill these needs. And in fact, it often made people feel 
less in control. Because if there's some kind of hidden agenda that, that you have no say in, that you can't control, that's, its power is just beyond our imagination, and I can't do anything about it, what it does is it has a pacifying effect. It tends not to spur people to action. So we have a sense of, of, of wanting ration, rationality, a sense of wanting to be safe, in control, in a sense of belonging. Now I want to say, today I want to convince you of a conspiracy theory. A big conspiracy theory. We can call it the, the mother of all conspiracy theories. It's not as crazy as you might think. This is what I'm calling uh, joining the divine conspiracy. Uh, this phrase, uh, to give credit to where credit's due, uh, comes from a, a, a Christian thinker by the name of Dallas Willard, who wrote a book on Christian discipleship called The Divine Conspiracy. And when he was asked, why did he pick the title Divine Conspiracy? Well, he said, well, first of all, when you think of conspiracy, it tends to be whisperings, right? And you have to be close. And that's his picture of discipleship. You need to be close for these whisperings. But in another sense, he said, he said, what else am I supposed to make of God working behind the scenes Despite all appearances when you just look at a world that looks broken and messed up. But God is continuously at work. And I think what we see in the text today is a divine orchestration, a manifestation of this conspiracy. To invite people to join the conspiracy. And to meet two people, to take two people from very different backgrounds. To make them meet for a short time. And in that moment, um, have eternal impacts. So I'm going to invite uh, Ruth up um, to read the text um, for today. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. 
Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Thank you, Ruth. So we have a story of a, a man named Philip. This is Philip the Evangelist. Um, he's one of these seven we read about in previous weeks who were called to serve the church. Um, and yet, um, he very quickly, like Stephen, becomes an evangelist as well and is preaching the gospel. Has a very, minute, very busy ministry in Samaria. And it's in this context in which uh, an angel of the Lord appears to him. So here's what I would like to talk about today. In this context of the divine conspiracy, I want to talk at least four points about what is the nature of this conspiracy, this work that God is continuously doing behind the scenes. Even when the world looks broken, when the world looks like it's, it's senseless and meaningless, and you ask why, God continues to be at work. So I want to talk about four points. And then I want to talk about Philip and the Ethiopian as two types we can look to as examples of, of what our response should be in light of this inv invitation to join the divine conspiracy. So what do we see in this text? Well, we see an angel of the Lord appearing to Philip and sending him down the south, down this, this desert road. Couldn't God have just appeared straight to the Ethiopian? I mean, that might be one of the first questions you ask, right? If God's going to send an angel to Philip, why didn't he just send an angel to the Ethiopian? Would have been much easier. First point, God is in the recruitment business. God wants people to join his conspiracy. God wants co-conspirators. Why? We could talk about that all day. One, one suggestion I'll give is that God's goal simply isn't to get the message out, but to change people through the spreading of the message. Though we don't see in this text, we can trust that Philip's life, Philip's character, Philip's relationship with God is changing through his obedience to God's command to go. God's command to interact with other people. God is concerned not simply with people believing particular truths, but with people being in loving relationships with him and with, other, with others. And that's at the core of the Great Commission, that we are called to join in God's work which draws us into a, a more loving and closer relationship with God as we move forward in obedience, acts big and small. We see here no specific uh, goal in mind when the angel says. He just says, go. And Philip trusts it. He goes. Now, Philip could have made a bunch of excuses, right? Now, to be fair, I'm pretty sure most of us won't make excuses if an angel pops up. You know, unless you're like a, a Jonah or something like that, and you're going to run the opposite way. Maybe some of us are that stubborn. 
But there's many ways in which God is nudging us, and, and God's voice becomes clear in our lives. I mean, how many of you, at least at some point in your life, says, you know, I'll do anything as long as God doesn't send me to X or Y or to do this? Maybe we haven't verbalized it, but we've thought it in our head. A quick little example. Um, as I was growing up, I didn't practice Lent. And as I got older, I began to value traditions. And, and I saw Lent as an opportunity to engage in a spiritual discipline, particularly one to check my willingness to do things for God. And so maybe I'm just a glutton for punishment, but very quickly, do you know how I chose what I gave up for Lent? It was whatever popped into my mind of something I thought I couldn't live without. I think I hate myself. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, one year, I remember I had a good friend I would always tease because she was a vegan, and for some reason, it was a very American thing to do to tease vegans. I don't know why. And so Lent comes up, and I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> why was I teasing a, a vegan? I got to go vegan. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's plenty of examples in this. Are you willing to go when God says go no matter what? Even when it doesn't make sense. Philip's leaving for a time, a busy ministry in which he's seeing many people come to know the Lord. And he says, hey, go. And we see he's going for, for one. So not only is God in the recruitment business, but God is in the business of reaching individuals. God isn't simply concerned with the masses. God is concerned with the one. God isn't concerned whether or not Hope City gets three, four, five hundred people. Sure, he would love those numbers. There was a, a pastor in America, Mark Driscoll, who used to say, well, we count numbers because, because uh, you know, numbers are, are people and people count. And that's true and that's good. But we can't lose sight that each one of those numbers is an individual person. And God is concerned with the individual. God is concerned with the Ethiopian. This reminds me of Matthew 18, 12, in which Jesus says, What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go and look for the one who wandered off? God is concerned with the one. God is concerned with whether or not you will join his divine conspiracy. So Philip goes, and he meets the second character in the story, the, the Ethiopian. This is, at the very least, we know he's a, a God-fearer. He's worshiping in Jerusalem. It's not clear uh, whether he was a Gentile, whether he was of Jewish origin. We know he's a eunuch. He can't have kids, and he's in a trusted position handling all the finances of the queen of the Ethiopians. So this is um, the Kandake there, um, or however you pronounce it. Don't worry, it's not really important how you pronounce a dead language, at least in my opinion. Some people might disagree. Um, but this would be like saying Caesar or Pharaoh. So as a eunuch, he was placed in a, a trusted position of confidentiality and, and overseeing the finances for uh, the ruler, or at least a ruler, of the Ethiopians. In uh, biblical times, that would have been the kingdom of Cush, not modern-day Ethiopia, but around modern-day Sudan. So we see the Ethiopian who, I'm sure, I don't, I don't know exactly what the psychology of the Ethiopian was, but I'm sure it was mixed. For some reason, he's, he's at least interested, and he's worshiping the God of Israel. We know this. 
We know perhaps on his mind, because of the text he's reading, he seems to be interested in... Um, so this is Isaiah 53 here. He's, uh, Isaiah 53 he's reading. It says, He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and, was, and as a lamb before its share is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. So this is the Septuagint Greek translation. And perhaps he's looking at this, thinking of descendants, a man taken from the earth. I'm not going to have any descendants. How, how do I relate to this story? So we have two individuals, Philip. We first see his willingness to go. Then we see the Ethiopian, who's seeking, responding to the little bit of light he has. He has the Old Testament, and he's wrestling with it. What else, what else do we see? Well, we see that he's willing to ask for help. Philip asks, do you understand what you were reading? The Ethiopian responds, how can I unless someone explains it to me? Now, I don't know where you are today. I don't know if you relate more to Philip hearing the call to go and share the good news of Jesus or if you're a seeker, perhaps a God-fearer, or maybe you feel like you're not even to that point, you're, you're a skeptic, and you don't, know, you don't know if you can accept this story. If, if Jesus really was who he said he was, if he really died for the sins of the world and rose again. Well, I think there's something to learn from this Ethiopian. He responded to the light he had, and then he had an openness to be taught. He had an openness to learn. My mind goes to a, a, another Christian thinker by the name of G.K. Chesterton. He always had a very witty way about himself, uh, was a clever, kind of always had a clever turn of phrase, and he says this about the nature of being open-minded. Perhaps you consider yourself a very open-minded individual. Here's what Chesterton said. He goes, merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. So I want to challenge you with that. This is one thing we can pick up from the Ethiopian. Is Not only did he have a willingness to try to seek answers, which I think stands in stark contrast to in modern times, we are, we are largely individualistic, at least in the West. We want to determine our own truth. We want to determine our own faith. We often might say, well, well, you know, you have your opinion, I have mine. Don't force your opinion on me. No, the Ethiopian wanted to learn from what Philip had to say. This is not to say we shouldn't use our brains and think, but we shouldn't also remain openly skeptical forever because the goal of thinking, the goal of being a seeker, the goal of looking for the truth is to find the truth. Just like a mouth, you open it, to shut it again on something solid. So as we continue on this story, we see Philip who he's sent, and he meets this Ethiopian eunuch. He's got a, a relatively good social status, but perhaps he's wrestling with questions of longing and destiny and purpose, um, particularly that he can't have, can't have kids. But he's still seeking, responding to the light he has, an openness and a humility to be taught, and then a willingness to commit 
to bite back down upon something solid when he finds it. Jumping back to Philip, what do we learn from Philip? Not only did he have a willingness to go, but he went with an urgency. We see here, it says, the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran. (laughs) When God says go, run. Not like Jonah the opposite way. (laughs) Run toward what God has for you. What else does Philip do? He starts where the Ethiopian is at. He's ready. Um, 1 Peter 3.15, which um, was alluded to earlier, reads, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. What does this look like? Well, it could look like, uh, you know, something like apologetics, right? We have a bunch of books over there. Um, if you want, even if you're, if you're a seeker or you're trying to, to, to learn how to talk to seekers better, there's some great books. Head over there, take a look at them. There's a great one by Tim Keller, I believe, Making, Making Sense of God. Um, and there's a handful of others as well. I see Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. These are all classics. Um, start to prepare. Does that mean you need to know all the intellectual answers? Well, what we see here is, is he sees that, that the Ethiopian is wrestling with the Old Testament, wrestling with this prophecy of Jesus. And not only does he know that this points to Jesus, but then he's able to go and to explain the whole good news of Jesus after that. Looking in at Isaiah 53, this is an image of uh, the great Isaiah scroll. For a long time, we didn't have a copy of the book of Isaiah that predated um, the birth of Christ. And then some years ago in Qumran, a cave um, over in the Middle East, um, they found a bunch of jars with old uh, papyrus in it, old manuscripts. And they found uh, what they call is the great Isaiah scroll. And in there is Isaiah 53, which is pictured here. Um, and it dates to about 125 to 110 B.C. Previously, it was a thousand years later that the oldest manuscript was. Why do I find this so fascinating? And why do I point this? Because this is an incredible apologetics tool, an incredible prophecy if you read through Isaiah 53. If you, if you show it to someone who simply knows just something about Christianity, but doesn't know the Old Testament well, they will likely think it's about Jesus before you even explain it to them. And we have a copy of it that dates before the birth of Jesus. Isaiah 53 would have been written about 700 years before Jesus was born. A prophecy of the coming Messiah, which is fulfilled in which Philip points the Ethiopian Two. Another thing we should learn about the conspiracy is that the conspiracy, the key to the conspiracy is Jesus. We see that in Isaiah 53. Now this text very naturally leads into Jesus. But regardless of where you are at, regardless of where your friends are at, regardless of where your acquaintances are at, Whatever brokenness they feel, whatever longings they feel, it points to fulfillment in Jesus. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began that very passage of scripture, or began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news 
about Jesus. Then they begin traveling along the road, and the eunuch sees a body of water, and he asks this question, which I think is very important. He says, he says look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Now, here at Hope City, we practice a theological generosity on beliefs on baptism, whether it's infant baptism or adult confessional baptism. And me, personally, I hold to an adult confessional baptism. But, but in any case, wrestle with the text. And, and what we believe is that regardless of whether it's infant or adult baptism, if you believe the text teaches that, it's an act of obedience and identification with Christ either way. And so I want to put that challenge to you today. Have you been baptized? Have you been identified publicly with Christ through the waters of baptism as an act of obedience, an act of identification with Jesus? One thing I love about this, this Ethiopian, he's, he's, what keeps me? What, what, do I have to wait? I think this is also an incredible example of inclusion. You see, in the Mosaic law, there was, there was hindrances for eunuchs from being full, full um, worshiping members of Judaism in the temple. And so perhaps this is in the back of his mind of saying, is there anything that's keeping me from following Jesus? And Philip's response is to baptize him. Not, not make him t- take a bunch of classes. Uh, not make him wait a long period of time, but he baptizes we're actually going to have some registration going on for baptism coming up. We don't have a scheduled date for it. But if you are interested in being baptized, um, you can go ahead and I don't have the slide up, but we'll pull it up during the Q&A. Um, and you can hop on to the Hope City website um, and register for being baptized there. The last point I, I want to draw out before closing is that it is a conspiracy that's meant to bring great joy. So it says, when the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. And then Philip goes on preaching up the coast of Israel. I love this uh, phrase from, uh, from John Piper. He's an American pastor. He says, in all the setbacks of your life as a believer, God is plotting for your joy. That doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect in life. But ultimately, it's not going to be the, um, the, the random, material, earthly things that are going to bring that ultimate fulfillment. Whether it's for, for a, a desire for, for, for reason, uh, a desire for safety and control, or a desire for belonging, those can be found in Christ with great joy. Now, Philip, he had an angel appear to him to say go. What can we draw from that? When you hear God say go, go. But what, when you do, what happens when you don't hear God say go? Well, you go. Because that's already clear in the Great Commission. Jesus already gave the command to all of us to go. So if you're here today and you've already trusted in Christ, you're already following Jesus, you're already a Christ follower, go. And it's really an as you're going throughout your life, look for opportunities to have these conversations, to start where people are at and to point them to Jesus. 
Now, if you haven't chosen to follow Jesus, I think John Piper uh, sums up um, this good news well. He says, the gospel is the good news that the everlasting and ever-increasing joy of the never-boring, ever-satisfying Christ is ours freely and eternally by faith in the sin-forgiving death and hope-giving resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask Jake to come up, and we're going to have a song of, of reflection. I want you to sit in there and think. And as, as, as the song goes, I want you to ask yourselves these questions. What can stand in your way? What can stand in my way of turning to Jesus if you need to turn to Jesus? Of being obedient in baptism if you need to take that step? Or of sharing the good news of Jesus with others?